Welcome to the SCU Buzz podcast. I'm Greg, a third year Bachelor of Science student at SCU with a passion for regenerative agriculture. I'm also the grateful recipient of a VRM Biologic Future Leaders Scholarship. Today's agricultural students will be faced with a range of significant global challenges when they graduate. In this podcast, we'll be discussing the benefits of regenerative agriculture and exploring whether it provides some solutions to the many problems faced by farmers. Joining me is someone who has been pioneering innovative farming techniques for four decades, Ken Bellamy. Ken is the founder of VRM Biologic, a Queensland-based company driving agricultural transformation worldwide through its revolutionary soil-enriching technology. Welcome to the podcast, Ken. It's great to have you. Thanks, Greg. Good to be here. So, look, Ken, I found that um, with most stories, it's probably best to start at the beginning. So can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you first developed an interest in agriculture and the approach you took towards agriculture? Sure, sure. So to be very honest, my initial interest was not actually in agriculture. I, I came to this discussion after hearing a, a quite powerful presentation in a group of financial leaders where the discussion around financial risks, which are associated with uh, food security and with environmental decline um, were, were discussed as being fatal to financial world. Uh, and, and in fact, the, the, uh, the statement was made uh, way back in the 80s by, by a uh, quite visionary person that, that if the financial leaders were not advising their clients to look after their environmental responsibilities, both they and their clients would be out of business in 20 years. So that, that was a very powerful statement, and I, I, I approached the discussion from that perspective to, to um, really dig into what was the environmental issue that people saw a critical risk evolving around, and what were the current elements in play that could mitigate or reverse that risk. Uh, after some money spent and surveys done, both in Australia and all around the world, the answer that what, that we came up with was that the the current production system specifically for protein in all its forms was not keeping pace with the, de the demand for protein and therefore there was a net drawdown on protein in the oceans of the oceans and in the oceans of the world so that was a that was a you know a revealing thing to discover that and and i you know that that topic wasn't huge back in the 80s but as you know it's very topical now where that boiled down to was two things. One was that concentrated waste from concentrations of humanity was degrading land and water globally. So there's, there's less of the natural mechanisms in play which clean up waste because we had such huge concentrations all around the world. That could have been sewerage outlets near cities that killed off the, the fish that normally, or, or drove away the fish that normally would be harvested food or it could be the degradation of land itself by using it for wastes and 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 uh, drawing on its resources other than for our food so it could have been those um, but more specifically it related to the fact that in order to produce more food um, more and more intensity was being applied to the topsoil where that food was produced and that the number of acres of topsoil actually in play under production was reducing rapidly 
so that as populations increased, the number of, of hectares of land that was supporting those populations was simultaneously decreasing. That I, I saw that as a as two things. Number one, a pretty big problem, and you know who, who thinks about topsoil in those those kinds of numbers in the hundreds of millions, billions, let's say of of hectares of land, and and in terms of a net mass balance of biological operative capacity, that's a bigger picture than just somebody's farm or somebody's vegetable patch. And then secondly, what was very disturbing was that there was no attention whatsoever at the time that I could find to the replacement of the depleted reserves. So topsoil was a resource that was being um, effectively degraded or its capacity consumed. It was not being replaced. And it was just seen as, well, that the wind blows it away, the water washes it away as the, as the climate, um, you know, as we use the land. It gradually gets less, so we can't do anything about it. It was roughly that that kind of discussion. So I said, okay, well, if, there, if we're going to mitigate the risk, we have to address what it is that topsoil is, what it is that we take out of it, what it is that represents a decline, and how do we reverse that decline? And that's how I got into regenerative agriculture long before it was called regenerative agriculture. Yes. Interestingly, unlike some other companies, your your solution bases aren't just products, but they're also uh, very process driven as well. A lot of your patents are for processes as well as for products. Can you talk us through how you developed that complementary holistic approach to soil regeneration? Yes, actually, all of our patents, and there's quite a number of them around the world, they're, 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 it's now in the you know, several dozen. So they're all of them are methods. All of them are techniques that a person, um, both a person skilled in the field and a person who's not skilled in the field, um, can apply. So step one, step two, step three, do these things and you can address um, a particular aspect of that holistic um, approach. Also, all those methods can be done individually, but can cascade together to have a cumulative effect. So a person who is more interested or more intense about the need to repair a piece of soil, can apply more than one technique and, and have a cumulative effect. So that's that's how that's done. Um, I don't know if you know this, people look at patents as being some way to protect what you have so others can't get it. There's another aspect of patents. Patents actually, uh, you, in order to get one, you have to be able to tell people exactly how to do something. So patents also represent a mechanism by which once the patent is out there and being used, uh, knowledge is in the public domain. So a mechanism for, for let's say, improving the capacity of soil um, to store and accumulate nutrients such as phosphorus, a technique for doing that becomes part of the public knowledge as soon as, as, soon as the patent is published and accepted. So that was actually the purpose of patenting. It wasn't to prevent anything. It was to make sure that others couldn't prevent it. Yeah, sure. And and those those processes and procedures, I believe you've had a lot of success around the world with those being implemented to in, increase agricultural output within countries which aren't necessarily uh, traditionally seen as large agricultural producers. That's That's correct. So I said in the beginning that what we looked for then was what was what was it that made topsoil? How was topsoil made? How did it come to be in the first place when 
mountains were thrust up by geological and and other other geomorphical geomorphic processes, and then wind and rain and everything degraded the rock and turned it into into some kind of dust, and then that somehow gained a living aspect and became a storehouse of organic carbon in the form of humus. How did that all happen? So that and then that relates to your question in that lots of places on the earth that currently are seen as non-productive, non-fertile from from a agricultural perspective once were and that some of the places which are now productive once were not that previously they were just the dust blown off a volcanic eruption and this, and there's a living component that's been that's been somehow adapted and developed in that so we looked for the engine room we went out specifically to find something that was not in um, the scientific uh, record that was not present in any any document or library that we could find, but which drove the processes that converted um, sand and rock dust into uh, living soil. And we made a few discoveries. Initially, there wasn't any knowledge, so we didn't have any. We just had to presume that somebody somewhere knew how to turn a bunch of rock into black, rich, fertile topsoil. Somebody knew because there were accumulated piles of black, rich, fertile topsoil on the planet that somebody knew how to do it right so we assumed that 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 there was a mechanism that it was and that we hoped it was still present it wasn't just a few million years ago and we're all going to die out and and actually we did find a a set of contributors firstly we found that by setting up mechanisms by which we assumed there was a black box that did that and feeding the black box different things that we thought they might like and the process might like, and then observing the outcomes to see what was working and what wasn't. So essentially, the black box became a catalytic reaction, a mechanism by which we could tap into a natural reaction. We didn't actually see or understand in any great depth what it was that was happening that until about 1995, until the first in-depth discussions around purple photosynthetic bacterial activity came into knowledge that discussion did not relate to agriculture related to other things sewage and other other reactions um, but we noted that some of the byproducts were present in some of the things that we wanted to see as healthy soil so then we said right we've got a we've got a, a lead here we're on the trail what it turns out is that there's actually a kingdom of organisms it was first thought to be a subset of victoria uh, of bacteria it's now identified as a kingdom of archaea that has a remarkable set of properties and a remarkable set of capacities and is present in every soil, every place, everywhere on the planet, and not just in the soil, in the oceans, in the in the atmosphere, and um, in every living thing, in every living thing. So that's a, that's a you know pretty good thing. That gives us another tool that wasn't there when we started that nobody knew about that now now the world knows about and you know our our job was therefore to develop ways to make friends with that community and to help build on the capacities or, or you know align ourselves with the capacities of that kingdom on the planet yeah great so the uh, what you found was that natural living things which have been here some of the first uh, living things on this earth were essential for the creation of soil. Correct. Soil predates humans. Had to be before us. Yeah. 
So um, what are some of the, once you discovered this in the, in the sort of mid to late nineties, how did you then develop, what, what are some of the things around the world that VRM Biologic have done with this technology and how has it helped farmers around the world? Yeah. So what we've done is learn what that kingdom likes to eat and drink, learn what they do to some extent. I don't think we know very much of what they do. We know a bit, you know, what they do, um, and then learn what makes them happy to some extent and then trade them. That's, that's nothing different to learning what your chicken likes to eat and, and feeding it what it likes to eat, what's good for it. So we, we've embarked on a process of that. Most of your listeners who are connected with the concept of regenerative agriculture will simultaneously be connected with things like sourdough, wild fermentation, uh, identifying and, and being cognizant of the activity of a range of different fungi. The, I think people who are in, involved in this discussion are aware that those are corollary pieces of the discussion. There are other reactions that happen side by side when regenerative agriculture takes place. So, so those those things became interesting to us. How is it that that happens in a let's say a dry location? How can you how can you foster the the appearance of fungi that require moisture? So rhizobial fungi, for example, present on every root hair of every plant globally, whether it's a desert plant or whether it's a plant that grows on a rock and has no soil, or whether it's a plant that grows in yelp soil, rhizobial fungi, they're things, they're bits of the discussion. Um, where do they come from? Who, who farms them? Where do they, you know, how do they appear? We learned that they like to eat certain things and that, that there are guys around who make things that they like to help them come around. Plants are seen as sugar producers. They use that sugar in some instance to grow to fuel the growth of their, their bodies and use it to store nutrient for their seeds in fruits. They use it to attract bees and other insects to help pollinate. And they use those sugars to produce root exudates that attract rhizobial fungi who then go and get other things they want. So they trade the sugar for other nutrients with that community. Wow, that's pretty cool, right? So our premise was if we could find somebody else who made that sugar, if we could find a, a, a circumstance where the rhizobial fungi appeared but the plant wasn't, we would know that there was sugar being produced by somebody else. Turns out that's the case. Turns out to the extent that you can make friends with the community which, which feeds the fungi, which feeds the plant, that other community will feed the fungi and the plant doesn't have to waste its energy feeding itself. How's that? just it's just a trade right sugar is the currency if the plant doesn't have to spend it but it still gets its nutrient because somebody else is donating sugar to the rhizobial fungi we have a winner now as we went further down that track we discovered that that somebody else was phototrophic organisms which do not use the same type of light the same spectrum of light as plants use plants use a very narrow spectrum of visible light to do all of their manufacture of sugars so they're limited they can't do it at night time these other guys don't use that light in fact use spectra on the on the near infrared infrared and and the uv cycle all the way out to some very far away from visible spectra and therefore they can do it all the time they can do it underground for example and you know deep in the ocean in, in water aquifers for example far under the ocean where no visible light reaches they can do the same thing and make sugar. That's pretty cool. 
that's pretty cool. So yeah, that was yeah, that's uh, that's where we went, and you know, along the track, we discovered an amazing byproduct of that kingdom, which is the pure capacity not just to make soil, but to make water. One of my long, long-term early biology and high school conundrums was the assumption that water was always there when we know it wasn't. Yeah, and and a pro- well, I was going to say a problem which, as we look at uh, world climate, we look within um, the last week or so, we've had record temperatures off the coast of Tasmania. Water cycles are becoming less predictable. Uh, vapor transpiration rates are going up. Water is going to become a much bigger issue going to the future than it was for the last century. Absolutely. So somewhere back in the in that dim, dark ages of our history, we actually presented a different version of the water cycle, adding two components. One component is the consumption of the molecular construction, which is water, so the splitting of hydrogen oxygen that takes place during plant photosynthesis, meaning that gases are released, not water. And said, wait a minute, that's a piece of the water cycle that nobody's noticed. If that kept going, we'd run out of water. So therefore, there must be another element, which is the rebonding of hydrogen and oxygen into water, the manufacture of water as water. That one's, Those two elements of the water cycle are very interesting. With that, one could potentially buffer the extreme impacts of changes in the water cycle. Wow. So as we look to the future and that, and, and you've uh, intimated, you know, we can change things such as the water cycle uh, using natural means. Um, the Australian government, its policy is to grow the farming sector so that it exceeds 100 billion in farm gate outputs by 2030. And this is based or underpinned by a, a National Farmers Federation paper, which is 52 pages long. And yet, if you do a word search, the word soil does not appear once within that document. Do you think soil remediation is underplayed within Australian agriculture? And do you think we have a sustainable farming sector into the next generation unless we address this problem? Uh, very good leading questions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my view is that if we're going to talk about agriculture and we don't talk about soil, we have no answers. Point number one. If we're going to talk about sustained food production, and our premise is that we're going to grow all our food in in jars. I would I would counsel everybody to do the mathematics of that, and and discover exactly how many people over the next fifty or sixty years will actually have access to those outputs of those manufactured food products, because the number is significantly lower than the number of humans on the planet. Just do the math, which means that if our future if what we are saying in such a publication is that we're moving away from from our interconnectedness with the biome on the planet to um, replicate food production independently and not use soil, there is a dangerous, dangerous corollary to that that a lot of us have got to die to reach that objective. I'd prefer not to have that as the target. Sustainability means what can you replicate constantly that will actually happen when you are present. Something is not sustainable if you have to keep topping it up. So if we're talking about sustainable activity which supports the life of humans on the planet, then that has to be the incorporation of 
systems which the humans do not have to control by definition. But that means we have to take a step back and look at ourselves as part of the system, not the controllers of the system. The, the premise that we control agriculture by virtue of what uh, chemical or other inputs we put into it is just tragic and leads us to a situation which we are now in where there's a dependency on the human input to most agriculture at scale on the planet, which has been recognized by a number of very large governments on the planet uh, to be a formula for food insecurity, not food security. So we have to look at that very, you know, we have to look at it um, with open eyes rather than viewing the discussion of sustainability from who's going to control sustainability. We have to actually take a step back, in my view. I know that that's not popular, and yes, we've had our run-ins with people who feel that their livelihoods depend on the supply of artificial inputs to agriculture. I know that there are strongly held views in that regard. I also know that the ecosystem is significantly more powerful than that it has been, been uh, given credit for, and that, in fact, the real truth is, the question is only whether or not humans survive, it's not it's not in question as to whether the ecosystem will survive. So yeah, I, I, what I see is take those sorts of publications, take that sort of information with a grain of salt. A good publication to look up is the um, State of Agriculture publication by the UN Food and Agriculture Committee, which came out last year, and also the state or, or the state of knowledge of farm inputs, which was a global perspective on what goes into agriculture, what's used in growing food and why, and what are the pros and cons of each of those, I would direct people to look at that document instead. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned their inputs and Australia has a large, Australia's agriculture sector has a large amount of inputs into it. It's also a large exporter. Um, in fact, it's a major net exporter of agriculture, uh, with our exports accounting for about 70% of agricultural production value in this country. But when those agricultural products are exported, so are the minerals that we've put into them, uh, most of which have been imported. Phosphorus is a classic example. Um, Professor Terry Rose, who's one of our lecturers within the Regen Ag specialty within Southern Cross University, with some of his colleagues from SEU and Western Sydney University have calculated that between 2000 and 2018, we exported over 136,000 tonnes of phosphorus every year in our agricultural exports. And if we recycled all the um, possible uh, domestic sources of phosphorus, we would still would have a deficit of 45%. With such high inputs of a finite resource going into Australian agriculture, how do you see us solving that problem? Well, I know this is an unpopular thing to say in Australia. We are a drop in the bucket of the planet. There's only 26 million of us living on about 7.8% of world's agricultural land, much more if I include marginal land. There are other countries who face the issue that you're identifying there with, with much greater trepidation and, in fact, can't afford that kind of wastage that you've just described. One example of that is the country of China, which um, currently has about a quarter of the world's population on uh, roughly the same percentage of arable land or a little bit more. They all, that country also does not have the 
um, access to uh, phosphate fertilizer um, as a as an unlimited resource and has to has to be dependent externally, creating a, a nightmare situation where, as you're aware, every instance of photosynthesis in a green plant requires a content of available phosphorus either in the soil or otherwise supplied, or the photosynthesis can't happen. So that that means in very short terms that somebody holds the drawstring on food for a quarter of the world's population, and you can bet your life that they're not happy with that. We were specifically asked by a section of the Chinese government, by an agency of the government, to address that situation for them firstly by finding a way to biologically to make biologically act second grade phosphate a, a byproduct of producing map and dap and firstly to find a way to stimulate phosphorus cycling that did not involve the, the addition of external phosphate extremely important subject that we we in concert with the university of beijing produced a long-term and very detailed study whose outcome was that the use of our locally produced organic catalysts made from plant substrates and other substrates and liquid catalysts together made from um, uh, progressive food waste and other really difficult organic residues, that the combination of the use of those in, a, in our almost microscopic application to land uh, was sufficient to be a viable alternative for any application of chemical fertilizer on that land or in that crop. So that was a ma major breakthrough. Uh, first, The first thought of that is what you're doing is mining phosphates that have been applied over several years to an agricultural circumstance. Uh, yes, yes, that does happen. Phosphates accumulate in a soil. Um, especially as the soil changes its its uh, pH from consistent use of chemicals, you do get an aggregation. Phosphorus applied as phosphate stays active. There's discussion over it, but I can say that we've mapped it that in less than seven days, it's almost not available anymore. But interestingly, Greg, crops grow for more than seven days. So you've applied your phosphate, it's become locked up in the soil and unavailable for the plant in seven days. The plant somehow gets phosphorus for the rest of its existence. That tells me that there's a much greater reliance on the chemical side of things than should be. Just that fact. What we discovered was that it is that, that there are other reserves of phosphorus that you wouldn't think of. One of them is the very abundant atmosphere. So... People are aware commonly of things like biological nitrogen fixation, fixation of nitrogen from the atmosphere. People are aware of biological carbon fixation, fixation of CO2 and carbon molecular structures from the atmosphere. I think that it shouldn't come as a surprise to us that if there's phosphorus in the land, the sea, and everywhere in between, there might be phosphorus in the atmosphere as well. I can show you that we've demonstrated that the total pool of total phosphorus does not change in land where the available pool is in, increased such that plants can ac access available phosphate. And there are biological processes that allow that that you can stimulate. By doing that, you do not deplete the pool of total phosphorus. And our ecosystem 
is amazingly set up that it will draw down on demand to replace what's used. Well, there's a fabulous note of uh, hope for the future. Um, another one, another positive note for hope for the future is uh, Southern Cross's uh, first world first bachelor degree in regenerative agriculture. And it's something that uh, you've obviously decided to uh, support very heavily. You offer a range of scholarships. In fact, last year you announced um, half a million dollars to support a range of scholarships at Southern Cross University. How important is it for you that the next generation of farmers and potentially more importantly, agronomists are building their knowledge in this um, space of regenerative agriculture? I think it's critical. Um, regenerative agriculture and the degree at Southern Cross has two bodies of people who graduated from it. One of those are people who have become interested in becoming farmers. So young people who've become interested in farming in a certain way, regardless, just becoming farmers. So replacing the pool of of farmers who are dying out on the planet. Average age in Australia is 65 years old. In most countries, uh, close to or above 60. So we're, that, that's, a, that's a job where the participants in the job are dying out. So Having, having a course which re, reignites the passion for, you know, growing our food and participating in land and the management of land is a great thing. Secondly, you know, since World War II, when, when the focus of agriculture became a focus of how much fertiliser you put on and which one you put on, um, essentially, where the dominant feature of our agricultural practice is the manufacture of and, and delivery of artificial nutrients to agriculture, the knowledge around agriculture has essentially been skewed by skewed to have several generations of people who are the advisors to farmers essentially be, you know, that's their job. So they've got to learn that piece. It wasn't their job to learn other parts of, you know, land management cycle that, that is offered in, in, in the, the degree at Southern Cross. So we thought, well, if we're going to, if we're going to at least balance those scales, we need to have more people who know how to do other things, not just people who learn how to do that. So since the focus was sort of more heavily in the regenerative agriculture course towards those other aspects of agriculture, you know, learning about the different different living aspects below the surface of the soil, uh, we thought that we need, we need to foster that. We need that to happen. Um, there are countries around the world that don't have access to that knowledge and they're, you know, are humans many, many more humans that live in Australia. We need that knowledge in, in those countries. Um, you know of at least Sri Lanka that's banned um, anything but organic growing. There are several countries in Africa who have mooted that. China has made a statement that the country needs to move away, pivot away from the use of chemical and synthetic inputs and pivot towards biological and organic inputs in agriculture. That's, and that's a huge place. Uh, why not? Why not develop knowledge in that course amongst young, excited, innovated agronomists who can go out and be exported from Australia as knowledge exported. Why not? Yeah, absolutely. And I'd say my children keep reminding me that I'm very quickly approaching 50. But on this course, there is a fabulous cohort of young school leavers who are passionate they are inquisitive they question orthodoxy and they really have they're, they're the lifeblood of the future and they bring the course course to life 
And I, I suppose my my question to you would be for anyone listening to this who's thinking of going to university, who is a school leaver, who's thinking, who's interested in agriculture. What advice would you have for people wanting to enter the field of regen agriculture? The concept of the university began as a, a couple of people sitting under a tree and and exchanging knowledge. That's that's the basis of the of a, of a university. People people sitting together and ex, and exchanging knowledge. A university is not a giant funnel where people pour knowledge into your head so you, you can run around with it. The university is a place to learn how to think and learn how to solve issues that we that we all commonly face. So in terms of regenerative agriculture, that just goes that just plays straight into what a university is supposed to be. It's a place I, I don't necessarily um, like the idea of challenging orthodoxy to tell you the truth. I don't like the idea of just doing something just disruptive but to do something else. If you're going to do that, find a solution before you do. Sit down and do your homework and work out what will work before you discard something that, you know, to some extent has has worked. Find another answer. And where are you going to do that if you're not sitting with people who are in conversation with you where your brain is stimulated to come up with other other possible outcomes? And where are you going to test those outcomes to make sure you're not developing another cane toe? You know, that's what your university is for, is to, yes, question, yes, can this be done better? Not, don't come from the point of view of everybody in the world is bad and, and we're going to knock them all over because that doesn't get us anywhere. Find something that need, that can be done better and, and explore that, yes, by all Wonderful. Thank you. So... Uh, Ken, not only do you um, offer scholarships uh, to students at SCU, but you also have some other connections to Southern Cross University. Could you just explain what they are? Uh, yes, uh, Southern Cross has, has had an initiative um, um, in the laboratory section for some years in um, carbon management and soil soil assessment. Uh, you know, the university offers a service for soil analysis. Uh, we've supported that, and we and we continue to do for quite some time now for that. Uh, because it, because of the uh, information that's provided to farmers and others who give their soil samples or have their soil samples analysed at EAL, um, that's a very valuable resource in the country. It's and it's it's becoming known that that is a uh, an additional element um, where instead of just getting a chemical analysis of the construction chemically of the soil, um, you can get information about other aspects of what might be the interplay between the uh, of living uh, biota and and the chemical elements of soil by using EAL, so we we recommend that and we and we've been using that ourselves for our own you know background data collection for some years. Yeah, we as students we had a tour of the EAL laboratory uh, recently on a soil management course, um, a fascinating facility, and I'm I'm pleased to announce that soil science is going strong at SCU. Uh, we were one of the only universities one of the few universities to have two teams competing at the National Soil Judging Competition up in Darwin uh, a few months ago, which went really well. So, um, yeah, soil science is, is uh, alive and strong at SCU. So, so um, there's a little little uh, diagram that you can look up. Um, uh, soil science involves the chemical aspects and the biological aspects and the geological aspects of a soil. All three have to be in play. For too long, we've only been focused on the geological aspects and chemical aspects of the soil relationship and have not given equal weight to the biological aspects of that 
none of them can be seen on its own. You, ha you have to consider all three. So that's, I think, EAL provides a significant window into that. Um, I can tell you that for some time, it was the only place we could get that information. There are a couple of others, but not many in the country still. Ken, what's next for you and what's next for VRM Biologic? We're having a meeting of our global leaders in the next two weeks because we've identified a new theatre of operations on the planet that, that we're fortunate enough to be connected to. We currently operate in five theatres, Southeast Asia, China, uh, Middle East, North Africa, USA and Australia, and have six others that are global regions that are pending. But there's a new there's a new um, theatre of operations which has opened up, which is inner space. There's a bunch of uh, direct engagements by cooperative countries that don't necessarily cooperate too well during their time on Earth that are cooperating to develop mechanisms to grow food in the space stations and in satellites and then on the moon and perhaps elsewhere. And, you know, who would have thought that that would be a serious you know, opportunity in our lifetime, but it is. Well, so the company's literally going stratospheric. Literally. So we're we're engaged directly with a number of the the uh, corporates that are investigating that and with a number of governments, and we think that's a way forward. Secondly, there's another one which I, I am, it's my personal passion, but, um, the, the construct of the degeneration of the ecosystem um, is completely shown symptomatically in the degeneration of the genome of, of organisms living in the, in the ecosystem. We know that about potatoes, tomatoes, chickens, cows. It's also true of humans. Human genome is uh, degenerated. Genetic diseases uh, form a greater and greater uh, part of our existence as a human race. We see a fascinating and direct correlation between the capacity to rebuild, regenerate the genetic capacity of a soil and therefore the genetic vigor, the hybrid vigor of animals and plants in connection with that soil and that the secondary impact on genetic vigor of the human race over five, six, seven generations of the future is potentially within our grasp. So that is a fascinating, fascinating thing. And you know, we have a, a set of patents that's lodged globally which address that subject. The linkage between regenerative improvement of a soil and the gene shuffling that occurs between soil, microorganisms, and macro flora and fauna, meaning that genetic messaging and genetic strength is passed through the food chain seeing ourselves as part of that food chain means that there is a potential for improved genetic in humans that we see as, you know, in the next 50 years, long after you and I, might be um, an iteration of the use of what we've discovered. Wow. That's absolutely fascinating. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast, Ken. Um, it's been great to have you. If people wanted to know more about um, yourself or VRM Biologic, where could they go? Uh, you can go to, to our website. We have a website called uh, uh, agriculturalabundance.com. You can go there or to vrmbiologic.com. You can go there. Send us a message, any, any, you know, where we're a team of people just like yourself, Greg, who are, who are in 
you know, enabled to answer various questions and everything. And please, please do that. We're happy to do that. As a teaser for you, as we're winding up um, for a podcast in the future, your questions about the phosphorus cycle, your questions about um, human health and about food security are all linked. Linkages, the phospholytic cycle, production of ATP and the use of that in energizing living cells. That's a that's a that's a interesting discussion for the future. Wonderful, thank you. Um, well, that is very exciting for me because uh, phosphorus is something that I'm hoping to go on next year and look at in my honours. Um, so thanks for thanks very much, Ken. Thanks, Greg. We really enjoyed it. Brilliant. Thanks very much for listening to SCU's Buzz podcast. We acknowledge the traditional lands that this podcast was recorded on and extend our respects to elders past and present. <laughs>